Well, I spent many, many days this past week just thinking, how do I start this sermon? What can I say to prepare our hearts and our minds to hear God's word given to us through the Apostle Paul in, in Romans 8? I've also been thinking about how the very first time I administered the Lord's Supper, Stephen gave me some things to think about and pointers that uh, I needed to know on what to do. Um, When I did my first baptism, Stephen pointed out a few practicalities that I needed to know so that everything would go well. So I always figured, okay, when I have to do my first funeral, Stephen will be able to point out some of the things I need to know and be aware of. The Lord had other plans. I tell you all that to tell you I'm still not sure how to begin this sermon. (laughs) And maybe for, for this day and for this sermon, that's entirely appropriate. And so this might be the longest non-introduction introduction you've ever heard. (laughs) But let me say one other thing. The other day, I got up and it was early. And it was dark and and I, I looked out the window and the clouds which always seem to hang over this country looked dark and ominous. But just a a sliver of the sun was arising beyond the horizon. And it was amazing. It was amazing. I I took a picture of it and then went and showed Maeve because it was beautiful. Because where that little sliver of the sun was popping up, the clouds were beautiful. They were orange. They were red. Same clouds, but suddenly I could see them in a different light. That is what I want for you today. I want God's word to pierce a hole through the heavy clouds of sorrow that hang over us so that the rays of the light of future glory can break in and we see the dark clouds in an entirely different way. So that is my hope for you this morning. And so our text comes from Romans 8, 18 to 25. You can follow along if you have your Bibles or just listen and let the words go from your ears to your heart. Romans 8, 18 to 25. This is what the Apostle Paul writes. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes what he sees? 
But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. I'm very thankful for verses like these. Verses which, which beckon our eyes to look up and out. Up to God and out into the future. Verses which, which put the present day realities of suffering and sickness and death into an eternal perspective so that when the last page of your life is turned, you don't even need to read it because you know how the story ends. That's how Christians die well. That's why Stephen died well. Before we jump into this text, I want you to notice that this is a cascading argument that Paul is making here. Look at all the fours that Paul says. Verse 18, for I consider. Verse 19, for the creation. Verse 20, for the creation. Verse 22, for we know. Verse 24, for in this, right? This, this word for is grounding the claim that came before it. It is providing support for that statement that was previously made. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna walk down these steps that Paul's making here in this argument and see how they turn our eyes upward and outward into the future. So let's start in verse 18 where Paul draws this line from present suffering to future glory, right? He writes, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And just so you don't think, oh, Paul, you don't know what I've gone through. I've suffered much in this life. Let me remind you what Paul himself says in 2 Corinthians 11 about himself. He says that he was, quote, in far more imprisonments with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. And so Paul suffered greatly. He suffered greatly. And none of it was meaningless. None of it was meaningless. He writes just a few chapters prior to this in 2 Corinthians 4, 17. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. How many times was Paul near death? How many times was he beaten? How many times was he without food and exposed to the elements? And he calls this a momentary light affliction? What is he thinking? He's thinking in terms of Romans 8.18. All that suffering is not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to him and is being prepared for him. 
It wasn't meaningless. And it's not now. It's not now. There was not a single millisecond of pain that Stephen endured that was meaningless. Because when he opened his eyes to see Jesus, glory beyond all comparison. Some of you here have suffered much in this life. Some from illness, some from injury, some from some debilitating disease, some at the hands of sinful men. Know this well. It's not purposeless. It is preparing for you an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Take these words of Paul from Romans 8.18 and treasure them. Love them. Believe them. That's why they're here. Know that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us so that when trial comes, when, when difficulties come, when the pain gets intense, when the suffering leads to death, you don't quit and you say, well, this Christianity thing didn't work out for me. I'm still sick. I'm still near death. The cancer didn't go away. I still can't walk. No. Paul is pointing us ahead. He's making us look to the future, to that future glory. Yes, present momentary suffering, but future glory beyond all comparison. That's what he wants us to get us to look at. He's trying to make us look ahead. And so he goes from that to this next step, right? Because in verse 19, we move to the next four He says, so the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. And so there's there's a relationship between our suffering and this present creation. They're, They're interrelated. And just as we as believers look forward to that time when that glory is to be revealed, Creation itself is waiting. Creation is waiting. It's eagerly waiting. From from the, the smallest particles to the billions of galaxies that exist in the cosmos, all of creation presently exists with an eschatological hope. There's something not right with this world. Something's gone wrong. And so creation waits. Waits eagerly. Waits for what? For the revealing of the sons of God. That's amazing. Creation is going to be changed. It's going to be renewed. But not yet. Not now. It's waiting for God's people to radiate with the glory that has been prepared for them from the sufferings that they have endured. But not yet. When Christ comes, then fullness of glory, and then creation renewed. John says in 1 John 3, 2, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And so when, when, when Christ appears, when we see him, 
we will be transformed. The glory of the sons of God shall be revealed and then creation will say, I wanna go over there. I wanna be with them. I want to be over there. Why? What happened? Why is creation waiting for that? Well, look at the next step here. Verses 20 to 21. Four. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Creation was subjected to to futility, not willingly. It didn't want to be full of tsunamis that kill thousands of people. It didn't want to be full of volcanoes and hurricanes and tornadoes that cause mass destruction. It didn't want to be filled with famine and drought and viruses and disease and Alzheimer and dementia and cancer. It was subjected to futility. Notice Paul says that creation itself is in bondage to corruption, to deterioration, to decay. It's not just you. Creation is enslaved as well. But why? And who subjected it in this way? The answer to the why is cosmic treason. The answer to the who is God. He's the one who did it. In Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve ate of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, their heart turned from the all-satisfying one And they said, that fruit, that looks better than God. It was disobedience to their covenant God. And it was idolatry. And it was cosmic treason. And they sinned. And God says in Genesis 3, 17, Cursed is the ground because of you. And we know that that Paul means that it was God who did this. Because he says that creation was subjected to futility in hope. In hope. Man can't do that. Satan can't do that. Only God can do that. Even in subjecting creation to bondage to corruption, God did so with hope in mind. The question, though, is is why creation? When, When Adam and Eve sinned, it was a heart issue. It was a heart issue, right? So Genesis 3, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, right? Sin is a heart issue that manifests outwardly, but it starts in the heart. And so if it's a heart issue, why curse the ground? Why enslave it to decay? Why tornadoes? Why famine? Why a landslide in Alaska last Saturday that swiftly tore down a mountainside and crashed into a home where a family of five was living and instantly they're all dead, including their three kids who were 16, 12, and 11? Why? Why cancer after you retire from serving God's people for 35 years? For two reasons. Two reasons, I think. I've been very much helped by John Piper in thinking through this. The first reason is so that you might hate sin. That you might hate your sin. Sin does indeed deal with the heart, the desires. But how many people are there at the end of the day that 
come to their bed and fall on their face and cry out in anguish because of the sin they've committed. We, we sin in our very thoughts. And there's nothing externally to show for that. And so we come to the end of the day, but do you hate it like you should? Do you weep over your sin? God subjected the creation to futility so that when we see natural disasters, when we see the rampage of disease, when we see the destruction of cancer, it would be a statement to us about the horrors of moral evil. Sin brought about death and destruction, thorns and thistles, pestilence and Parkinson's disease, and we rightly hate it all. We, we weep to see the death toll rise because of the earthquakes in Turkey. We weep and mourn to see our dear pastor's body attacked by cancer, but sin is at the core. These things exist so that we might fervently hate sin and hate it with all of our being. But second, there's a flip side to this as well. It's meant to make us live in hope which is exactly what Paul says God did. We're to look forward. We're look, to look forward to and long for that new creation that has been rescued from its enslavement to corruption. A new creation in which God himself will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither there shall be mourning nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. You know why everybody in this country loves summer? It's because this is a cold, dark land. <laughs> Living in that climate builds anticipation and hope for warmth to come. Come March, April, when it's still cold and raining and everyone is on edge, expectingly waiting for the news that heat is on the way, that summer is coming. Darkness makes us long for light. Coldness makes us long for warmth. The subjection of this creation to futility and its enslavement to corruption makes us long for the freedom of a redeemed earth. And it's not only us, but creation itself is wanting this very thing. Paul writes, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And so, so notice the, the parallel between verse 21 and verse 19 here. In 19, we read that creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. Here in 21, creation will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. The fate of creation is bound up together with the fate of humanity. When the sons of God are revealed, what will happen in its fullness when Christ returns? Then creation will be set free. And every believer who has been confined to a wheelchair will get up and they will run to Jesus. 
Every deformity and birth defect will be restored. Every sufferer of chronic pain will be released from the prison of their torment. And every cancer-riddled patient will rise in perfect health to the glory of their coming king. This is why these verses are here. So that you would believe them in your very soul and and help you live this present sinful fallen life in, in hope that you would live in hope as you stand on the edge of eternity. But we still look ahead to that day. It's nearer than it was yesterday, but we still look forward, forward to that future grace, to the future restoration, to that future creation. But it's not now. Now we groan. Now the creation groans. Look at that next four there in verses 22 and 23. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Now there is groaning. Now there is weakness. The whole creation, which includes our bodies, groans. But even these verses are pointing us forward to dwell upon this eschatological hope. There's a parallel in that regard again between verses 22 and 23. In verse 22, it says that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Childbirth. I don't think Paul's imagery is random here. In this fallen and sinful world, there is pain in childbirth, but in the end, there's also life, new life. This creation groans in the pain of childbirth until now, but there will come a time when the birthing process will be over and a renewed earth has been born. And realize that this is not something undistinguishable from this present earth. There is indeed both continuity and discontinuity. It will still be earth, but without sin, without curse, and it will be free. But note the parallel in verse 23. And not only creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the, the eschatological down payment. The Spirit is the beginning of the eternal inheritance given to God's children. This means that while we groan in this fallen mortal body, we have God's Spirit dwelling in us, helping us to long for that day when we will receive in fullness the inheritance that is ours. And so we wait eagerly. For what though? For adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Now, you might be thinking, but doesn't Paul elsewhere say that if we have faith, we are adopted sons of daughters? How can we also wait for that? This is the the eschatological now and not yet that Scripture presents to us. There are elements of the future state that are a present reality, and there are elements that will not come to its full fruition until Christ returns. Now we have the Spirit, but as a down payment of what is yet to come. The kingdom of God has come now in its inauguration, but one day it will come in its fulfillment. We are at present adopted sons and daughters of God if you believe, 
but then it will be on full display because there will be a revealing of the sons of God. And when that happens, new redeemed bodies. But just like creation, there's continuity and discontinuity. We will recognize each other. I will not be someone else. You will be you, but you will be changed. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 42 to 43, what is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. What is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. And so now we weep, now we grieve, now we groan. But there is a day coming when everyone here who has trusted in Jesus will stand next to Stephen and Angela and Vera Matthews and all who have gone before us and we will stand together in that imperishable glorified body that has been given to us and we will be raised in power and we will all sing together again. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee, how great thou art, how great thou art. What a day that will be. We'll look at this last step here. This last four, verses 24 to 25. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. I love the beginning of verse 24. For in this hope we were saved. I am tired of this body which yields to sin. I'm tired of the aches and pains and sorrow and distress and anxiousness that is a part of this present life. And so we groan inwardly, right? Verse 23. We groan inwardly as we wait. We wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. We can't see it yet, but we have the first fruits of God's promises to us. We have the Spirit, and so we wait and we hope. And in this hope, we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? If you can see it, it's not hope. If you can look at it, you're not hoping for it. It's right there. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. God's people walk by faith and hope and trust and not by sight. Not yet, anyway. Not now. And so in hope, we wait. We wait patiently for all that God has promised to bring about. And it will be ours if we wait and hope, not in ourselves and all of the the good things that we think we have done, but our hope is firmly rooted in the promises of God who cannot lie and our Savior who cannot fail to save. As we've been going down these kind of steps, walking down these, these fours of Paul's argument here, I want you to notice something back up in verse 18. Because verse 18 also began with a four. Verse 18 was the first step down. 
And so to get to that step, let's go up one, back to verse 16. So if you have your Bibles, look at Romans 8, verses 16 to 17. Because there Paul writes, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. So this is how we know that we are God's children, right? And if we are God's children, then we're heirs, heirs with Christ. That future glory, that redeemed body, that promised new world will be ours because we are co-heirs with Christ. But there's a caveat. There's a caveat here. There's a condition that has to be met. It's not just, well, the spirit has to testify to your spirit that you're a child of God. There's another condition, verse 17. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided, here's the condition, provided that if we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. If you are a child of God, you will suffer in this life. You will suffer with Christ. The prosperity gospel is nonsense. Health, prosperity, wealth are not indicators that you are a child of God. Suffering is. Suffering with him. And not purposeless suffering, but suffering with him in order that we may be glorified with him. Suffering now, future glory. But the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So you see how that moves right into verse 18, right? That's the first step. There's a reason why when, when Christians are hit with a tsunami of suffering and the sea billows of sorrow and pain roll over you, that whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, to say, That's not what the author originally wrote in that hymn. It was to know. I don't know if he changed it or if someone else did, but to know is much better. Because we can can speak words. We, We can say words that we don't actually believe. But to have God's unshakable promises branded on our hearts and minds with the iron of absolute sovereignty so that when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to know, it is well. It is well with my soul. And we're going to sing that in just a minute. And it's my prayer that when you sing those words, you wouldn't just say them, but you would know them. Because one day, if the Lord should tarry, we shall find each one of ourselves in the same position that Stephen has been in. And amidst the pain and amidst the sorrow, staring death in the face, then you will be able to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. 
For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait. And we wait patiently for it. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, help us to live in hope. Lord, let these words be imprinted on our souls so that every moment of suffering we experience in this present life, that we will know that it is building up for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Help us to live this present life on the edge of eternity. so that when that last page of our life is turned, we will say, it is well. It is well with my soul. Lord, how we do thank you. That Stephen was a testimony to that fact. Uh, to the very end, it was well with his soul. Lord, he sees by sight now. We here continue to live by hope. And so help us, help us to wait patiently, keeping our eyes fixed on the goal, to know that Christ will always be with us, And we know it because we have the first fruits of that inheritance that is ours. We have the Spirit. And so help us this morning, Lord, this week, in the coming weeks and months, in the midst of all of our sorrow, to look to that future glory and to see at the center of it Christ, the one that our hearts long for. The one that Stephen embraces right now. Help us, Lord. Help us in these frail bodies that we have at the moment to long for a new creation, to long for redeemed bodies to live in light of that longing for your glory always. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to stand now.